Welcome back to another edition of the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. I'm your host, Justin Martin. This week, I'm talking with Michael Sonnenschein. He is the CEO of Grayscale. And Grayscale is the world's largest digital asset manager, offering a wide range of secure, regulated, and future-forward digital asset investment products. What is this really? This is all about a Bitcoin ETF. You might have heard that phrase before, an exchange-traded fund, essentially the ability to get Bitcoin into the hands of everybody who accesses traditional financial products on traditionally regulated exchanges. This has been a long time coming for Bitcoin. We still don't have a spot ETF today. So with Michael, we chat about why that's the case and all the interesting ramifications around it. Let's jump in. To start it off, I actually would love it if you could give us some context on Grayscale um, and you know what it is that your company does. Grayscale is the world's largest digital currency asset manager. Um, we're based uh, here in the New York area and have been around since 2013. I think for us, uh, we were early to identify that digital currencies were going to become a bona fide asset class. Um, we were early to realize that investors were gonna wanna have access to crypto. And also with so many of us having traditional financial services backgrounds, realize that accessing crypto um, was gonna look different than accessing ETFs, stocks, bonds, you name it. And so if we thought about those challenges directly, well, we could have that be the solutions that our business would really focus on. So we've created a whole family of investment vehicles so that investors can gain access to things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and you know, also baskets or thematic exposures uh, within crypto as well. Yeah. So asset management for Bitcoin. And this, my lens on this, by the way, is, you know, we have two primary paths to getting exposure to the crypto ecosystem. Path number one is to buy the assets yourself and custody them yourself. And then you're kind of playing on the bare metal. You know, you own the Bitcoin, you're managing your wallet. You're a native citizen of Bitcoin, right? The other path is, well, there's a lot of money on Wall Street, a lot of money in traditional financial products, and they have a certain quality bar, a certain set of expectations around how these are going to be managed and reported. And though that, that whole realm, you know, didn't have or or still kind of doesn't to some degrees <laughs> have all the sort of products and features that we want. And so that's kind of where Grayscale is focused. You know, while it's certainly been very encouraging over the last eight years to see access to crypto uh, become easier and easier, and that's drawn more investors and more capital into the ecosystem, which is a great thing for the evolution um, and growth of the asset class, that at the same time, there does still remain challenges. You know, a lot of institutional investors um, can can hold a bearer instrument, can hold an asset directly. There are rules that that dictate that they can't do that, and so they do need an investment structure, um, or they do need um, the ability to have audited financial statements and tax reporting, things like that. That you know, a Grayscale product certainly offers them. And then there's also individual investors who perhaps don't want to open new accounts or or want to or have the comfort to handle crypto directly. And so if they have a brokerage account or they have a retirement account and they own shares of Apple and Google and you know whatever else in it, well they can also own shares of Grayscale products in those accounts and have that you know crypto exposure right alongside um, the other investments they already have. Give me a picture of some of the products that do exist today. Whether yours or somebody else's, but like, what are the real, you know, paths to get exposure to Bitcoin or crypto 
through these traditional products? Well, so certainly, like you said, the ability to buy crypto directly. And so whether you do that at a Coinbase or another wallet or exchange or, or order book is certainly um, one opportunity for investors. Um, another is a little bit more synthetic. You have some more sophisticated investors using derivatives like Bitcoin futures and things like that. Um, and then you often have funds and, and listed products, right? So you have Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Um, many of you know uh, ticker GBTC. Um, that is uh, the public trading symbol for the Grayscale Bitcoin product. And um, it's the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. It has about three and a half percent of the outstanding Bitcoin supply underpinning it. And so uh, it's been, you know, I would say probably the access vehicle of choice for people looking to get crypto exposure. Yeah. And when you say the access vehicle of choice, are we talking just broadly in general or is this just specific to people who have money in their traditional brokerage accounts or? You know, I think what we've seen across other commodities or other investments where owning or securing the underlying investment itself may be a little bit more difficult, investors have moved towards access products, right? So that's true for gold and how many people use GLD um, as a you know investment vehicle to gain exposure to gold in their portfolios. It doesn't negate the need or the ability of people to own gold directly, which a lot of people still do. Um, but that, things like oil, you know, all these types of commodities, which would otherwise be difficult to have exposure to directly, having access vehicles, access products is a really compelling part of that. Yeah. Now, are there downsides to these investment products? Like, for example, you know, if I was so inclined and have to create an account and go through the whole process, but I could buy Bitcoin on Coinbase and I could custody it myself and let Coinbase custody it for me. That's a very, very clear path to me. I understand that very well. Um, help me understand the pros and cons of using an investment vehicle like GBTC versus owning it yourself. So I think one of them we already hit on, which is, you know, do you want another account? Um, do you want another place where your assets are held? I think in today's world, you know, so many investors are trying to aggregate things where they can. So they have a full and kind of complete picture um, where all their assets sit. Um, and so to some investors, there's there's some pros and cons there to either consolidating that exposure with your other investments or having other accounts. Um, two, I think things like tax reporting, right? So it's going to be a little bit different what you may get from a wallet or an exchange or an order book, as opposed to what you get from owning an investment product that has an actual, you know, tax reporting cycle, um, at the end of each year and something that mirrors what you get for a lot of the other investments you have. Um, certainly when you invest in a product, um, you're, you're able to, um, do so with a offering memorandum that outlines risks and disclosures and has financial statements and audited financial statements attached to it, which is going to be a little bit different than owning crypto directly. Um, certainly those looking for a tangible experience with their crypto, whether they're using Bitcoin to buy something or to send value somewhere else, you're obviously not going to be able to do that with an investment vehicle like GBTC. Um, so that certainly will be a, a point of differentiation. And then I think lastly, something that a lot of investors are starting to think about is, you know, wealth transfer, right? And, and as they think about, you know, the value of their crypto assets, um, you know, hopefully appreciating in value over time, how you set them up in a way such that your descendants or your beneficiaries ultimately own those assets, um, which can be a lot more cumbersome with crypto directly than maybe when you own something inside an investment product, it would be lumped in with other investments that would be passed down from one to another. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of... Uh... Uh, more subtly on the operational aspects of these things, right? It's, it's easier for a consumer to get involved. They have all their all their money in one account already. And so, you know, things are all kind of in one place. You don't have to worry about custody or anything else. 
Um, a lot of these problems are solved by brokerages. You know, I mean, Coinbase does a good job solving these as well, but it's just a different, a different sort of environment. Um, I, I wonder if we want to chat about um, how GPTC trades relative to Bitcoin <laughs> and uh, structurally why, why the prices are different. Yeah. So, you know, GBTC is um, our first fund at Grayscale and our flagship product. We launched it in 2013 and always envisioned it to be an ETF. So an ETF or exchange traded fund um, is an investment vehicle that trades on a national securities exchange um, that offers exposure to some underlying investment. So for instance, um, SPY is the ticker symbol for the S&P 500 ETF, right? So you can buy a share of SPY and in doing so you're getting exposure to all 500 stocks that make up the S&P 500. Um, the same is true of GLD, which is the ticker for the gold ETF and so on and so forth. This is a very um, familiar and, and protective investment wrapper um, that has really exploded in popularity, particularly in the US and you're starting to see it catch on in other jurisdictions around the world as well. Um, but GBTC came into being ultimately um, as a private placement. So initially GBTC was only available to high net worth and accredited investors and pensions and endowments. Um, and um, when you think about the evolution of GBTC, we did something really creative in that we uh, were able to then get approval for the fund to not just be a private placement, but to then actually get a public symbol assigned to it. GBTC was assigned to it in 2015. And instead of just being available to accredited investors and high net worth investors and you know institutions, it became available to anybody that had a brokerage account, anybody that had access to the US securities market. And so since 2015, it's been trading every single day, um, you know, 930 to four in the US, like every other security and um, has really grown in popularity because of the ease of which it allows investors to you know, give themselves Bitcoin exposure. And it's been individual investors, it's been um, you know, institutions, it's been put into mutual funds as Bitcoin exposure, it's been put inside of ETFs as Bitcoin exposure. Um, and so now there's probably over 800, almost 900,000 accounts in the US alone that own shares of GBTC. Um, and again, it controls about three and a half percent of the outstanding Bitcoin supply. Um, and so GBTC continued down this path of not just being a private placement, but then became publicly quoted. And then a few years later, it actually became an SEC reporting company. And so that meant that GBTC was then held to the highest of standards with respect to filing 10Ks and 10Qs and 8Ks. So the most stringent uh, reporting um, and, and financial and risk disclosure possible. And that opened the door of investing in GBTC to an even larger audience of investors who are typically used to seeing that. Now, every day that GBTC has been trading, it's been subject to market forces. It's actually not an ETF. That's one of the things that we're you know, working on and have not stopped working on for the past six, seven years. Um, and so instead, it has more of the qualities of a closed-end structure where every day the buying and selling of GBTC and the impact that market forces have on it will cause it to move away from or towards the actual value of the underlying Bitcoin that the fund holds or what's referred to as its net asset value. And so over time, GBTC has at times traded at a premium to where Bitcoin is, and today actually trades at a discount to where Bitcoin is. 
Um, today, the discount is pretty substantial. It's probably in the high 20 some odd percentages um, of a discount to net asset value. And so for a lot of investors, they make the decision when they're putting capital into Bitcoin, they can either take a dollar and they can go put it into Bitcoin if wherever Bitcoin is at market levels, or they can take a dollar and put it into GBTC and actually buy Bitcoin exposure at you know, 20, you know, 75 or 70 cents on the dollar, ultimately believing that if and when GBTC converts to an ETF, that discrepancy between where it's trading and its net asset value will be closed. Um, and ultimately, that discount that they're buying at will ultimately be made up for. Um, and so that's obviously front of mind and, and what the Grayscale team is working on these days. That was a good explanation. Thank you. Um, you know, hearing you talk about this, it, it makes me think, you know, the entire goal and objective here is to get Bitcoin exposure and not just Bitcoin, crypto broadly as well, but get exposure to, the, to these assets through, you know, traditional financial products. And the unfortunate reality is traditional financial products are heavily regulated and to date, regulators, namely maybe the SEC and a few others, have, you know, been skeptical or wary of approving such products. So GBTC has been sort of a path to shoehorn at least one financial product out there that can be traded on the public markets, that can get anybody access to this traditional, you know, these traditional means. But it's kind of this convoluted path to get there, right? And um, if I hear you correctly, you know, the reason why GPTC trades differently from the underlying Bitcoin price is because, well, structurally, it's not an ETF. And so specifically speaking, you know, if it's trading at a discount, the typical trade would be, okay, well, I'll buy a share of GPTC. I'll redeem it for the underlying Bitcoin itself and then go sell the Bitcoin at, you know, Coinbase or any other crypto exchange and profit the difference. But that's not necessarily possible because, you know, GPTC is structured differently due to how you had to structure it just to get it listed on these public exchanges. GBTC today has all the inner workings and makings of an ETF, except for two noticeably absent elements. Number one, um, if the SEC or when the SEC rather approves GBTC to convert to an ETF, it'll move to a national securities exchange. So in our case, it'll be moving to the New York Stock Exchange. And then two, the SEC will be granting GBTC approval to offer both creations and redemptions. And it's that built-in mechanism that all ETFs have that ensure that the market forces and the market participants involved in ETFs can ensure that the trading price of the ETF stays in line with its underlying valuation. Yeah, Let, let's dig into this. So this, I think, is going to be an interesting conversation because, okay, why do we have, you know, GPTC out there publicly traded, but not a spot Bitcoin ETF? And also we do have other Bitcoin ETFs. Let's get into this a little bit here, right? Can you explain to us the difference between different ETFs, right? <laughs> need, to, need to understand the plumbing before we can, can dissect all of it, you know? What we have here um, is really what I'll call an evolution, right? Um, the evolution of this from the SEC um, has really started from the standpoint of we're not going to allow any ETFs to come to market. Um, whether the ETF holds physical Bitcoin, so like a spot Bitcoin ETF, or if the ETF holds Bitcoin futures contracts. Um, and the SEC had historically cited concerns over the underlying Bitcoin market, that it had the potential to have fraud or manipulative activity, or the fact that the market itself wasn't surveilled enough um, to give them the requisite comfort to approve this. Now, even though the CFTC has come out and declared Bitcoin as a commodity, 
because what we're talking about here is ETFs, which are funds, which are securities, it falls under the SEC's jurisdiction to approve or not approve these products from coming to the market. Now, having that outward stance of no Bitcoin ETFs, futures, or spot was okay for a point in time because at least the playing field around this was level, right? There was going to be no product coming to market. And the SEC, I think, wanted to see the market mature a little more. And to be fair, do you think this you know, argument of wanting to see the markets mature, um, was it valid in the past? Is it valid today? It's tough to say whether or not it was valid. I think the demand was certainly there. And I think the market dynamics were certainly there. They're certainly more solidified and as mature as they've ever been today. Um, but what's what's been happening in front of the SEC's eyes while they've been holding out on this um, is the development of a really healthy two-sided market, lending and borrowing, derivatives, order management systems. I mean, really all of the structural elements there that I think should provide enough requisite comfort that this is a, a market that can um, you know, function in products that are built on top of it can function in a way that does protect investors. And so what happened was a few months ago um, in 2021, um, the SEC changed its tune and approved the first Bitcoin futures-based ETF. And um, that was a big milestone. Um, it was a big milestone for the industry, um, the crypto industry, the investment management industry. It was the first time that the ETF wrapper in the US was allowed to be used to offer exposure to a Bitcoin anything. And what was interesting about it is that the SEC didn't stop there. They then subsequently approved several more Bitcoin futures products. And what's interesting is that there's essentially two sets of rules and regulations that govern uh, the approval of ETFs in the US. One of them, in this case, is a little bit more geared towards the Bitcoin futures products. And one of them is a little bit more geared towards the spot or, or physically held uh, Bitcoin products. And what was interesting is that even though both of those rules and regulations have now been used for tens, if not hundreds of ETFs in the US market and are constantly being used to bring products to market today, um, the SEC began to very overtly state that they believed that the set of rules for the Bitcoin futures products actually had additional protections that they favored. And what was interesting about that is some of the protections they were talking about were things like the rules that govern the Bitcoin futures products, those products have to have an independent board and those products have to have certain custody um, you know, and certain uh, financial reporting obligations. Things that anyone, ourselves included, would agree are great protections for investors. But what was so interesting about them is they had nothing to do with assuaging any of the SEC's concerns over the underlying Bitcoin market, right? The things that they had always leaned on around fraud and manipulation and surveillance. And what ended up happening is a couple months later, now you know, fast forwarding a little bit closer to today's conversation, the SEC then approved a Bitcoin futures ETF under the rules and regulations that cover the spot or physically backed Bitcoin products. And so now we have a scenario where not only are there several Bitcoin futures products in the U.S. market, which is great, and they've been well utilized and they've been trading liquidly and continuing to, to grow, um, but now they've actually proven that the arguments that they were relying on with these additional protections 
they don't any longer hold up because now you have products registered and trading under both rules and regulations. And so if you think of this as an evolution of no products to some products, now products under both rules and regulations, the next natural step in the SEC's evolution will be to approve a Bitcoin spot ETF um, and allow that to come into the market. And a lot of investors have you know, been very patient um, and, and quite frankly, what we feel is unfair about the scenario that, that they're in is that they're almost being forced into leveraging or using the Bitcoin futures products because those are the only products that exist. Mm. And the SEC is really a disclosure regulator. They're here to protect investors. And so giving them the opportunity to say, as an investor, are the Bitcoin futures products more appropriate for you or are the Bitcoin spot products more appropriate for you? Those are, the those are the types of choices investors should be making, not their regulator. I mean, if you take a step back and think about it, like Bitcoin trades 24-7. We haven't ever really seen a market like this exist before. Every other financial product that actually is you know, really liquid and heavily traded exists on regulated uh, markets, on the NASDAQ, on you know, traditional public markets. So it kind of makes sense to me that the SEC would at least be skeptical of Bitcoin initially because, yeah, maybe there are some concerns around market manipulation when it trades 24-7 and a lot of the volume and liquidity is overseas or something. But what's funny here is, first off, you fast forward to today and you know the Bitcoin market is heavily liquid, one of the most liquid in the world. And you know to move that market or manipulate it would be uh, very, very challenging, number one. Um, very expensive. It, yeah, very, very expensive. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but more to your point is, if you look at the SEC's behavior, well, they've approved futures ETFs, but not spot ETFs, which is a giant question mark because their underlying concerns are always around fraud and manipulation. And the way they approved the futures ETF didn't pay homage to that at all. What you essentially have is a Bitcoin futures ETF. And what does that ETF hold? It holds Bitcoin futures contracts. And then you have, on the other hand, a Bitcoin spot product. And what is that going to hold? It's just going to hold Bitcoin itself. And so when you look at what these two different product types are going to own, one being the Bitcoin futures and one being Bitcoin spot, and then you look at, well, where does the pricing for each of those come from? And what are the markets they're looking at? They're actually identical, right? The same exchanges, including Coinbase and others, that are part of the reference rates that give pricing and valuation to the Bitcoin futures, which then give pricing to the Bitcoin futures ETF, are the very same exchanges that give pricing and value to the Bitcoin itself that would then give value to the Bitcoin ETF, the Bitcoin spot ETF. And the SEC even acknowledges this in some of its approval orders. So it's, it's a really weird and bizarre predicament that we find ourselves in, where in the case of you know GBTC specifically, right here at Grayscale, we have the world's largest Bitcoin fund. It's trading hundreds of millions of dollars a day. It's in the hands of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of investors. And we are asking our regulator to bring it closer into their regulatory perimeter, bring it closer into their oversight, give investors even more protections, right? It's such a weird scenario to be in because you never find companies, you never find businesses walking into regulators and say, hey, could you regulate us more? Could you oversee us even more? And that's really what we're asking for here. We're asking the SEC to step up and do the right thing by investor. I mean, I, I have to ask, I mean, 
first off, when there are really strange decisions being made that don't seem to add up, like what is going on? Like what 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 really is like what do you think is the real reason why there's been you know a spate of these odd strange decisions? It's really tough to pinpoint um, where a lot of this is coming from. I would say though that the environment that we find ourselves in today is unlike one where we've ever been, meaning that the level of knowledge and understanding around crypto in DC is as robust as it's ever been before, and that also benefits from the backdrop of the White House executive order, which came out a few months ago, which really called into action all of the federal agencies to really forge a path forward into how they were going to approach crypto and crypto regulation with a pretty overt message to ensuring that we as a country, as the United States, remain competitive technologically that we embrace new innovations and that we don't squander any of the growth that's taking place here. So from a regulator standpoint, the combination of the successful running of Bitcoin futures products, seeing Bitcoin spot products in countless jurisdictions overseas, the backdrop of the White House executive order and the health and state of the crypto market overall, to us creates a perfect scenario for why this is the time for regulators to step up and ensure that they are actually taking all of this into account and doing right by investors. That obviously gives a lot of hope that you know we'll have the right sort of products landing eventually. Um, it doesn't quite clarify why we've had the strange decisions to date, though. I mean, does the SEC just hate Bitcoin, or I mean, can you can you give any sort of credence to like why they've chosen this path? It's really tough to pinpoint. Um, I think that we have, you know, certainly seen our attorneys and others come to the conclusion that the SEC is, in fact, are, you know, acting arbitrary um, and capricious, um, and that it actually, you know, is potentially grounds for a lawsuit, um, which we we've talked about quite a bit before. You know, when you look at a U.S. regulator like the SEC, the essential rule that kind of governs the way regulators regulate is called the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA. And as a regulator, when you have two things that are alike, you need to treat them alike. And so in the case of a Bitcoin futures ETF and a Bitcoin spot ETF, you're looking at two things that are very much alike, as we just discussed. And so it potentially is a violation of the APA. Um, and ultimately, you know, I don't think anybody wants to, you know, get embroiled in any kind of a lawsuit, but there there needs to be, um, you know, accountability here. Um, and ultimately, you know, at Grayscale, that accountability is to our ever-expanding, you know, base of investors. And we'll continue to put, you know, everything we can behind this issue. Yeah. I mean, it, it also feels like, you know, the, the, the nature of GPTC's product uh, not allowing you to, you know, you, you cannot redeem the underlying, and so you can't arbitrage the price difference. So it trades underneath the value of Bitcoin today, and it's traded over the value of Bitcoin, you know, in the past. That harms investors as well. I mean, you actually want investors to be trading at the price of Bitcoin, and if they can't access it to that, so, so it's almost like the existing products are actually detrimental to the health and safety of the investor. And for so many reasons, we-, we That's we should... one of the big arguments, right? There's billions of dollars of investor capital and value that would be unlocked if the SEC moves in a direction of approving this product to convert to an ETF. I mean, 
that in and of itself should be a, a motivating factor um, to protect investors and, and do right by them. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you in confusion. <laughs> I don't quite understand the path that they're taking. Uh, I also, I guess I have to just ask point blank, like, you know, you say it's a perfect storm to actually finally get, you know, the SEC and the regulators to step up and deliver the sort of products that we all want and need. Um, what's your bet? Is it going to happen this year? Is it going to happen soon? I am not a betting man. Um, <laughs> You're in Bitcoin. A, what are you uh, talking about? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Um, I would say that, you know, we remain, um, you know, committed to the fact that it's a when, not an if. Um, and so what timetable you want to associate with that um, is tough. Um, it's been a long journey to get to where we are now, um, but our team has plenty of, of fight um, and focus left in it to ensure that, that we ultimately do see this through. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Um, I, I, I'm also curious too, I mean, we we're just talking about the US market, but other parts of the world have, you know, similar sort of products that have already existed. How's it going for them? Are there any concerns over there? Does that lend more pressure to the SEC in the States? You know, I don't think that the SEC is necessarily going to be taking into account what's happening in other parts of the world. I think it's a good proof point um, in arguments being presented to them that these are well-functioning products in other jurisdictions. But I think they're really focused on the U.S., the U.S. market, and hopefully the U.S. investor. Um, but yes, there are plenty of spot products in other parts of the world that do function, you know, very, very well. Let's let's shift focus a little bit here. Uh, do you think we're going to ever see an Ethereum ETF or other crypto ETFs anytime soon? Or is it really just we got to Bitcoin first and then think about those things? Um, I do think we have to think about Bitcoin first and then we'll see this in, in other other parts of the crypto ecosystem. I mean, you know, the Grayscale team today, we have 14 products, 14 different digital currency products trading here in the US market, all of them with the aspiration of ultimately becoming ETFs. And so you will ultimately see a landscape of single asset crypto ETFs, basket or thematic in nature crypto ETFs, combinations of crypto and other asset classes in the form of ETFs. Um, it's just a matter of time. And I think you're, you're clearly ahead of the curve here a little bit. You're pointing to these thematic investments, these basket investments as you know satisfying consumer demand. People want that. And when you kind of tap into this you know, consumer or investor demand. Who are these consumers or investors that you're paying attention? Are they institutions? Are they are they retail consumers? I think it's all of the above, right? I, I think as folks are getting deeper and deeper into their crypto knowledge, they're starting to notice how these different subcategories and sub themes are beginning to solidify themselves. And so you would say that you know Grayscale's products are equally appealing to both you know retail and institutional participants. But is there a certain skew of one direction? I mean, I would assume, given you guys have three and a half percent of all the Bitcoin supply, that's probably held a majority by institutions. No, I would actually say as our products have moved um, over their life cycle and more of them into the public market, um, that it's it really remains a mix of both retail and institutional, right? Because if you want exposure to Bitcoin and you're an individual investor who has a limited amount of investable capital, you can go and buy as little as one share of GBTC, but you can also be an institution and you can buy, you know, much larger amounts of it, right? And so the appeal, um, I think, does span, you know, all different kinds of investor types. Yeah, that's fair, for sure. We've kind of covered a lot of things here, but I wonder if there's any big thematic buckets that you wanted to <laughs> at least No, I mean, cover. the only other thing I would leave folks with is, um, you know, you need to um, be advocating for yourselves as well as us continuing to advocate for you. Um, there's an important moment that we're experiencing now in and around crypto and crypto regulation. 
Um, and certainly when it comes to GBTC and its approval to become an ETF, um, the, the regulators need to hear from investors and whether you are, were, will be, maybe will be, um, or you're just concerned about these issues, um, we've made it really easy for investors to write into the SEC. Um, they have an open comment period um, around GBTC and other issues that they're evaluating. So if you go to grayscale.com slash comment, um, we've made it as straightforward as possible for folks to kind of advocate for what they want um, in the approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF. And I think to date, there's uh, probably now almost 8,000 letters that have been submitted um, and growing every single day. So um, if people want an action item or a takeaway, grayscale.com slash comment um, would be a really, really um, worthwhile uh, endeavor. Great call out. I'll, I'll just add a giant plus one to this too. I mean, I think that uh, w one of the things the industry needs, maybe top of the list, frankly, is we need regulatory clarity. And, you know, getting a spot ETF, uh, you know, letting letting Bitcoin be recognized on that stage at that level, that's a big, a big, you know, step, step function change for us. Um, but it's also true that, you know, crypto's really big at this point. There's a lot of money in this ecosystem. There's a lot of people doing really interesting things in this ecosystem. A lot of a lot of applications being built and developed. We're not small anymore. And I think that the politicians and the regulators kind of are going to wake up and recognize that this movement has been happening for a while. And it's not a little kiddie wave. It's actually more like a giant tsunami. <laughs> but the, the important thing is that those of us who care about this industry want to see economic freedom and all the awesome benefits crypto can provide. We do need to make our voice heard. And so actually being active, talking to your senators, talking to your regulators, um, letting them know that you care about these things is, at least in the States, one of the most effective paths forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. We did cover a lot um, and I look forward to doing it again. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. This is great. Well, there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. As always, I'm curious what you thought. This is obviously a challenging topic to discuss. The SEC has certain requirements and certain viewpoints and are acting in a certain direction. But is it a little bit more clear to you? Do you understand some of the things that are happening here? Leave us a comment. Let us know. Tweet at me. And as always, listen and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and catch us on the web at coinbase.com slash around the block. You'll have long form research, past podcast episodes, and a lot more. Until next week, see you then. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties. <laughs>